Hey, if you're here last weekend, I told you that Shane would be back this weekend, but Shane and I got together and said, we've got to teach the church how to be disappointed. And so that's why I'm up today again. So uh, I'm just saying. So we're going to be in Psalm 1. We're in the middle of a series, Summer in the Psalms, and today we come to a wisdom psalm. And so I want to explain a little bit about that wisdom psalm, and then we're going to read it together, and then we're going to kind of walk through it together along the way. So this particular psalm is called a wisdom psalm. There's lots of different kinds of psalms uh, as, as the authors write, but this one is a wisdom psalm because it gives us the path of righteousness. It tells us how we can live a blessed life, and it shows us and compares these two paths, righteous life, unrighteous life, and it shows you how blessed you are when you choose the, to walk down the path of this amazing journey with God. And we're going to be reading from the ESV today, and I'm going to explain to you why sometimes we go back and forth between the NLT and the ESV, is because what we do is we look at the original, and we ask the question, what is the most accurate translation that we can give to you? And in this particular psalm, it is uh, the ESV. So here's what I want you to do is I'd like you to stand together with me. And the reason I'm going to ask you to stand is in the Old Testament in particular, standing became an act of reverence for the Word of God itself. In fact, there were incidents in the Bible where Israel would stand for an entire day listening to the Word of God. So we're going to stand together in reverence for God and for his word. So Karen, why don't you read it to us? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You may be seated. So we're going to just jump right into it, Psalm 1, and we're going to look at this this. This psalm, up close and personal, I remind you, this was a song that Israel sang. So we get the opportunity to just dissect the words that are used here and make the application. I want to warn you that this psalm is going to affect your spiritual journey and uh, maybe be even a little convicting as we walk through it and we see what's actually in this psalm. So with that in mind, Psalm 1, verse 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat or the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Uh, this passage, this section of scripture is so good. The word blessed, let's start there. The word blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. The word blessed literally means favor. God's favor is upon you, which results in spiritual joy in your life. So let me ask you this question before we start. Anybody here at all want to have spiritual joy in their lives? Anybody? All right. So this is the path that God marks out for those of us that want to walk in spiritual joy. And I'm going to tell you, honestly, there are a lot of Christians that don't choose this path. 
They don't choose the path of spiritual joy. So I want to show it to you up close and personal. I want you to see this with clarity in your mind. So um, let's just think about what these first words mean, this spiritual joy in our life. So the first thing we learn in verse 1 is that blessed people, people who have favor from God, avoid three things. They avoid, first of all, ungodly influences. Would you agree with me that we live in a culture that has a lot of ungodly influences in it. Do you agree with that? And I think it is one of the most difficult times in all of Christian history to live today because of the effects of social media and media itself in our lives. First century, they had their own issues, but you and I have to deal every day with the instantaneous aspects of a media presentation, and we're, we're forced into that mold every day. So this is really a difficult time for you and I to live, so we should pay attention to what he says here. So the first thing that I'm supposed to avoid is ungodly influences. Secondly, I am to oppose worldly values. That's what it says. I'm to, op- I'm to oppose worldly values. There are a lot of things that oppose our Christian faith. It's not one big happy family moving together in this world. It is that our faith stands in opposition to worldly thought, worldly processes. And so it is one of those things when you and I live in the kind of lifestyle that God has called us to, our life is a conviction to those around us. And we are called to live in opposition, not in agreement, in opposition to worldly values all around us. And then we are to refuse a godless lifestyle, a godless lifestyle. So let's take a step back and let's define what worldliness is because as you read your New Testament, you're gonna gonna find that this concept of worldliness is all the way through the New Testament. So let me just define it for you. Worldliness is thinking and behaving like people who are apart from God. That's first and foremost. It's, It's not having a changed life. Worldliness is living just as if Christ didn't redeem me and change my thinking and change my life. And so secondly... It's living in a lifestyle that desires pleasures apart from God. That's worldliness, desiring pleasures apart from God, whether it's the eye, what you look at, or the pleasures of achieving status or whatever it is. You and I have a lifestyle that God calls us to. So Christianity isn't just about checking the box and coming to church. Christianity is about stepping into a lifestyle that stands in opposition to everything around us. And that may be something that might be new to some of you. It is not just this, you know, amazing feeling that I have. It is a standing in an opposition to things around us. So let's just stop here and let's just be real. This is church. We can't lie in church, right? Amen. You're not going to lie to me right now, are you? So let's think. We just celebrated the 4th of July. And uh, I'm going to ask you, in your 4th of July celebration, did the people around you in this celebration see a difference in how you celebrate? Because what the world does is the world, I don't, you know, 4th of July, big holiday, fireworks, and also a lot of drunkenness, right? A lot of people drink, start drinking beer about 6 o'clock in the morning, and, and they, you know, it's 4th of July. I mean, come on, we got to celebrate. And so by the time the fireworks are around, they, you know, they are uh, a, a little t- tipsy. You know what I mean by that? And so let me ask you this question. As you celebrated the 4th, did people see in you a distinction in how you celebrate and how you party? Christians are called to party. 
Did you hear me say that? <laughs> Christians are called to party, but there should be a distinction in how we party and what that looks like in our lives and a call to live a different kind of celebration. So what separates you from a person far from God? What I want to spend a little time with today is this psalm is so penetrating and so powerful. What separates you from the people around you? And how can I prove that from the scripture? So first of all, what, struggle, what, what separates you from, people, from the people around you as a Christian is not the struggle, okay? Christianity is a struggle, right? Anybody here not struggle with their Christian faith? Anybody at all? Come on, you're staring at me today. This is an interactive service. So don't just stare at me. That's rude. I've told you that before. It's rude just to stare at me. You're supposed to smile at me. And then you're supposed to nod your head like this saying, yeah, Pastor Dan, that is really good stuff. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. So, but you would agree with me that Christianity is a struggle. I struggle every day to walk with God. Do you? I struggle with the things around me, of accepting the things around me. So it is not the struggle that separates me out from other believers, or unbelievers, I should say. So what does separate me? So the true believer's life is marked by what you love and by what you hate. Let's start there. It's not the struggle. It's what you love and what you hate. So let's talk about what we love. My life is marked out by God by what I love. What is that, that that separates me from everybody else in the world? The answer is it's my love for God. That's the first thing. What I love is I love God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul. And I'm going to tell you that marked a difference in my life because I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't have this experience in it as a child. I didn't go to summer camp and get, come to know Jesus. I was a heathen kid. And I lived a heathen lifestyle. And I, you know, the truth is, is that I had this deal with God. I had this deal with God that said, listen, you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. And I'm going to tell you something else. I thought Christians were just idiots. They were jerks. They were, at best, they were weird. I'm just saying, I didn't like you a lot. You know, and I tried to, every chance I got, I tried to avoid you. And I certainly didn't show up in church because that's where you guys hung out. And I didn't want to hang with you guys. And what happened to my life is that one day I was walking down the path and God intersected my life and my life was never the same. All of a sudden, I fell in love with God. I started loving God with all my mind, soul, and spirit. And then I joined the party of weirdness. I'm just saying, I joined, I joined up with you all and now that my, all my old friends think I'm weird. Can you imagine that? They think I'm weird. And probably some of you do too, thinking, wow, you're just weird, Pastor Dan. And I'm, I'm okay with that because, you know, I'm just going to tell you, I was walking this direction one day, and then all of a sudden I had an encounter with a living God, and he changed my perspective of who he was and who you were and who I was. That's, how, that's what marks my life out as something different than the world. It's that encounter that I've had with God. And some people settle for church as opposed to an encounter with God. So some of people just come to church and what their goal is, is just to check the box to say, I've done church, I feel good about myself, and, and God is not really a part of the equation of everyday life. What separates the believer is their love for God. Secondly, the second thing that separates the believer is our love for the gospel. Our love for the gospel. I mean, listen, you cannot consider yourself a Christ follower and not love the gospel. 
If while I'm teaching the gospel, you know, if Shane or I are up here teaching the gospel and, and uh, we're talking about how God emptied himself and, and you're going, yeah, 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 get on with it, Pastor Dan, I'm gonna tell you there's something wrong with your spiritual journey. Because as a believer, you never get tired of hearing the, the good news, the story of how Christ redeemed my unredeemable life. And that I was the villain in the story and God transformed me from a villain to his friend. And I mean, it is a marvelous story. And so what separates the life of the believer is our love for the gospel. And if you don't love the gospel, I'm not condemning you. I'm just saying something's wrong. Something is broken in your walk with God. And the third thing that separates us out, not only our love for God and our love for the gospel, but our love for other people, all people, all people, your enemies, that's what separates me from being an unbeliever is that now I have this love for, for my enemies that is supernatural. I mean, I, it's not natural in me to love people that are different than me or even oppose me. So when that is true, when those three markers are in my life, when I love God, I love the gospel, and I love my enemies, then we come to Matthew chapter 6 and we discover some things that Jesus taught along the way that now begin to make sense because Jesus said, uses the same word blessed, favored. God favors those who believe in him. And then all of a sudden what happens is, is I have a lifestyle that's marked by mercy. Blessed are the merciful. For, you know, and it goes on and on and on about these things that are, should be in markers in our life. You know, blessed are those who love righteousness who love purity, that is the, those aren't the things we focus on. That's the byproduct of a life that's so, that is centered on God himself. And out of my life then flows these things that is, um, are amazing. So that's what we should love. What is it that we're supposed to hate? Because I can't, I mean, love and hate have to stand in opposition to one another. So there are some things that I have to hate, not people. There are some things that I have to hate. And those things that I hate have to do with the things that Christ died for. I don't celebrate those things. I don't have parties about those things. Those are the things that wreck me. They wrecked God. They wrecked Jesus. So I can't celebrate. I, can't, I, I have to hate. Like, for example, last weekend, we talked about lying lips, people who lie, that habitually lie. That's called an abomination to God. I have to hate lying in my own life. I have to hate it. I have to learn to hate the things that God hates. And, you know, I don't, don't let your mind run wild there, but the fact is, is that not only do I love God, but I have to hate what he hates, and God hates certain things to the nth degree. So Psalm 1 says, we oppose and separate ourselves for the sake of the gospel, and bottom line is that our influence penetrates the culture. So before we get into this whole passage of Scripture, I want to talk about how difficult that is. Loving God, hating sin, that's a difficult thing. I introduced the concept, but because we live in a media-generated culture, I mean, I just went and saw, over the 4th of July, I went and saw Indiana Jones, the new one that just came out, and I'm going, how do they make that guy so young-looking? <laughs> and uh, these two words came, these two letters came to my mind, I AI, artificial intelligence, I'm going, oh, yeah, that's the technology they use. We live in a culture that's dominated by technology, and so we have instant gratification, and we have instant feedback. That's the culture that you and I live. 
So let's talk about how, how movies affect us for just a minute, and then we'll get into social media. So did you know that, how many of you all have heard of the, at least heard of the movie Bambi? Anybody seen Bambi? All right, okay. So the year that Bambi came out, this is really fascinating, the year that Bambi came out, that hunting-related uh, purchases went down by 25%. It's true, based around a theology that was projected by Hollywood. Do you realize that Hollywood has a theology? Do you realize that? They're preaching a theology, and, and a lot of times we just go along and we accept theology without thinking through the processes. So let's take that into modern time. Game of Thrones, anybody ever seen Game of Thrones? Modern, modern uh show. And uh, when this particular show came out, I'm telling you, it impacted Northern Ireland. I mean, it took the economy. It influenced the economy by $1.5 million a year by just tourists like you and me going, hey, I want to go see where they, got, where they filmed that. And, uh, and I'm just saying, everything that happens, we take in. And guess what? Our brain doesn't forget anything. It has a place for it, and we, it settles in there. And so media has a theology, and it is something that affects us in a, in a good way, in a bad way. And this is what is sad about the culture that you and I live in, in, in relationship to the idea of entertainment. Anybody like to be entertained? Just love to have entertainment? Amen. I do. I'm, I raise my hand. You can raise your. It's not a trick question. You can raise your hand. I love entertainment. But in our culture, what we've done is that we've sold out. Because we look at entertainment and we accept. Smile at me when I say this. I'm going to be in trouble today. Some of you are going to hate me. And some of you are going to love me. But that's okay. I'm willing to live with that. We accept the things that Christ died for. And we call it entertainment in our lives. And we wonder why we don't experience the blessed life. Favored life before God. We have to learn to love what God loves. And we have to learn to hate what he hates. And we have to learn that there is a line and we've got to be very careful of that line and we have to realize that every day there is an infiltration of our theology that, that opposes God himself. And then there's social media and we live in, in the age of social media where uh, we live in a society where you get instant gratification. You, you, know, you post something and people like it or they don't like it and and uh, there's all sorts of opinions that are out there. And, you know, it is amazing what happens. Um, the impact of social media is a like a double-edged sword. First of all, it can inspire and inform you. I love social media. At the same time, it can isolate and mislead you. And so we have to let the Scripture determine what that is. So let's talk about how impactful social, me social media is. So this is not a political statement, but in 2017, when Trump was elected and inaugurated, there was a march on Washington, D.C. Hundreds of thousands of people showed up in Washington, D.C. And you know how they got there? Social media told them to go. That's how, I'm just saying that's how impactful it is. It's a very impactful medium and it influences, influences us every day and we've got to be so careful as to its effect on our life. So you with me so far? That's verse one. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And then we come to verse number two. Are you ready for verse two? Okay, verse two says, uh, but his delight, blessed is the man that doesn't do this, but this is the man whose life is marked out as blessed. Blessed is the man, uh, basically, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed people abide in the Lord. So I gotta stop and explain something to you. Psalm 1 is an old covenant psalm, meaning that I don't, I'm not under the capital L law as a believer. That was a Jewish covenant. So I don't meditate on the law, capital L law of God day and night. I take the principle from that and I say, okay, what does God want me to meditate on? If I'm not under the law, I'm under the covenant of grace with God. So what would God want me to meditate on? How about how good God has been to you in his grace? How about that to start with? How about this covenant of grace and how amazing it is that God took somebody like you. I can't believe, I'm just telling you, I can't believe that God saved you. I just can't, and I can't believe that God saved me. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that verse of scripture and I'm gonna say, maybe what God wants me to meditate on day and night are the principles of God in his grace, in his amazing work. And so I'm supposed to abide in him. So what does that mean? The word abide means to take up residence. In other words, it's where I live. It's where I live. I'm supposed to be, as a believer, if I want the blessed life, and you all said you wanted to have a blessed life. You wanted to live under God's favor, right? So the one who lives under God's favor is the one who 24-7 thinks about God and how good he is. Not just come to church, not just check a box, but 24-7, I take up residence in God and I don't have a life, listen to me very carefully, I don't have a life apart from God. I don't have two lives. I don't have one life when I'm here at Grace Church on stage and another life when I'm home or in, you know, or in Midtown or wherever else I'm at. I don't have two lives. I have one life. That's what it means to abide. And that one life is marked out by taking up residency in Christ himself and not having, you know, off days and not having a day where I'm taking a vacation from God, I just don't have those days. Even in my bad, even in my worst days, I still know the presence of God. That's what it means to abide in Him. And there are two key words, I think, if I'm going to learn to abide in Him, there are two key words that I've got to learn to do. First of all, the first key word is I've got to learn to delight in Him. You're staring at me again. Okay, I'm just saying. I've got to learn the concept of delighting in Him. Do you delight in in the Lord? I mean, do you delight in him? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Or is it like this? I mean, maybe this is how your life is. Maybe you get up and you think about God, you know, think, okay, God, you give me another day. And then you go your whole day and then you get off work and you come home and you think, oh, I didn't even think about God today. That's not delighting in him. Delighting in God is really the concept of just taking such pleasure in him that he's on your, the back of your mind all the time. All the time. And then not only do I delight in the, in the Lord, the next word that I would use is the word pursue. I pursue him with all my heart, mind, and soul. That's the blessed life. That's the favored life, that I'm pursuing God 24-7 in everything that I do. Every place I go, God goes with me. I delight in him, I pursue him. That's what it means. Then... Let's look at the results. Verse three, 
It says this. For those that have this blessed life, verse 3 says, He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So in the blessed life, here are the things that mark out the person who has this favor from God. First of all, stability. Anybody want stability? That's the mark of the blessed life, is not having these ups and downs and these, you know, this life that's just crazy. It's a, it's a stable life. Have you, I'm just going to make an observation. I'm not judging it. I'm just going to make an observation. Have you noticed in our culture how depression and anxiety are now out of control? What could be a possible reason for that? Is it, is it possible that the reason that we have this anxiety and depression in our culture so prevalent, and I'm not suggesting that if you've got those things that there's something wrong with you. I'm, I'm just simply saying maybe in our culture we've abandoned something because as a big C culture, they seem to dominate what's going on. Maybe we have stopped seeking the favor of God every day in our life. As a, and just kind of put him as kind of a genie that we rub his belly every time we need him, but he's not what drives our life. Is that possible that we've done that as a culture or even a church? Is it possible? You're staring at me again. I'm just saying. Stability, fruitfulness is another concept out of this passage. Usefulness, prosperity. All those words come right out of this psalm, and what, whatever he does prospers. So God, that doesn't mean you're not going to have problems. That doesn't mean you're not going to have struggles. That doesn't mean you're not going to have bad days. But as you look back over your life, you're going to see a life that God has blessed, favored. That's what this psalm is all about. That's what I want in my life, and I hope it's what you want in your life. And then we come to verse 4. Blessed people have great value to God. Have great value to God. Psalm one verse four says, the wicked are not so. Now we're talking about a comparison. The wicked are not so, but are like the worthless chaff that the wind drives away. Let me read that to you one more time. The wicked are not so. There's a comparison here. The wicked are not so, but are like the worthless chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff refers here to the husk of grain that are tossed into the wind and blown away. They have no value whatsoever. You know, chaff has no value as compared to the believer who has great value to God. How much value do you have to God? Immeasurable value. He sent his son to die for you. That's the value he placed on your life. So the blessed life is marked out by having and knowing and living under the, the truth that I am favored and loved and, and genuinely God has imparted worth to my life and every day I live inside that worth. And the reason people do bad things, by the way, is that worthless people act in worthless ways. Somebody who has worth acts as someone who has worth. It, it's a product. So are, do you understand your worth before God? Not only that, look at verse 5. I love the Bible, by the way. That's why we teach it here at Grace. Verse 5 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Here's what verse 5 says. Is the, verse 5 says is that the unbeliever is, the day of judgment is going to be a very bad day for them, but not so of the believer. For the believer, we are going to be judged. So let's just talk up close and personal about the judgment that you're going to face before God. Can we do that for just a minute? 
Because you're gonna face a judgment before God, so you probably should know what's coming. Can I talk about that? Okay, good. So the, the unbeliever stands before what is called the great white throne judgment, and there's no place to hide. All their sins are exposed. But for the believer, for me and for you as a believer, you will never stand in judgment for your sins before God. Never. And there, this is so, there are so many Christians that are misled here. They think somehow, some way, God is keeping the secret sin list up in heaven. And, and someday you're going to have to give an account for every sin that you've ever committed. And I'm just simply saying, if that were true, then the blood of Jesus Christ wasn't what we thought it was. The blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to cover every sin that I have ever committed, past, present, and future, and there's nothing that it can't cover. Every sin that I've ever committed or ever could commit is covered by the blood of Jesus. So I'm not going to stand in judgment before God over my sins as a believer. So what is the source of judgment that I'm going to have? I'm going to stand, based on what the, the New Testament says, at the, at the bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. What is the basis of the judgment seat of Christ? It's not my sins, it's my works. And the purpose of this judgment isn't condemnation. Listen to me carefully. This judgment isn't condemnation. This judgment is for the purposes of rewarding your faithfulness to him. Bottom line is your, work, your works are exposed. That which is worthless is burned up, and that which wasn't worthless is re remains, and you receive reward from God. You receive praise from God based upon that. That's the judgment you will face. And this psalm captures that idea that, you know, sinners, I mean, you ought to be, if, if, you haven't, if you don't have Christ in your life, you should be very afraid of the judgment to come. But when you possess Christ, you should look forward to that judgment. That's a judgment that is going to, that it's going to redeem your name. That judgment is a, is a judgment that is going to bring great joy in your life. That's what Psalm 1-5 says. It's so great. It's so great. Blessed people, lastly, have intimacy and protection with God. Verse, 16, verse 6 says, For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. So blessed people have God's protection and intimacy in their life. So I want to tell you one last story, and then I'm going to let you go do whatever you do on Sunday afternoons. So when I was like 20 years old, I had a really hot car. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. There's the reason my wife married me. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a pretty car. But even more than that, it was fast. It was fast. I could, I could drive down the freeway at 115 to 120 miles an hour. This was before speed limits on the highways existed in the dark ages, okay? I'm just saying. And I was driving one time you know, on, on a highway between Carson City and Fallon, and I was going about 115 miles an hour. I had three other people in the car with me, and none of us had seatbelts on. And I ran off the road. And I overcorrected. And my, my car, this hot car, started in a spin down the freeway. And I, it seemed like it lasted for a week, you know, in slow motion. 
And I have no idea, and I'm going to tell you honestly, there is absolutely no reason, humanly speaking, that that car shouldn't have rolled. And, at, and had it rolled, all four of us would have been killed instantaneously because of the speed that car was going. I'm telling you, an angel, I don't know what it was, God himself put his hand on that car and stopped it from rolling because there's no way physiologically it shouldn't have rolled with that kind of speed. And I'm just gonna tell you, when it came to a stop, I was an unbeliever. When it came to a stop, I recognized that there was a God and that he had control of my life and my death and everything in between. And I just wanna say to you, there is a God he has control of your life every, and everything in between. And that's why you and I should rejoice every day because of the intimacy and protection and nothing happens by, by happenstance. Nothing happens by accident. Everything in your life is designed just like the world is designed. And you can trust, you can trust that God has your best interest at heart. He knows you. He knows you intimately. And you should walk out of here today with, a, with your head held high knowing that God is a God of intimacy, actively involved in his creation, actively involved in me, in my life as an unbeliever who was acting stupid. And yet he override my stupidity and saved my life that day. And he's done that so many times since then. That's the God we serve. That's the God I love. That's the God that I worship. That's the God that Psalm 1 talks about. It is so great, so amazing. So let's stand together. We're going to end our services by just reading together uh, the first couple of verses of Psalm 1. And uh, this is where you participate. Uh, and then I'm going to pray, and you're going to run out of here as quick as you can. All right, there we go. So Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man. Now, wait a second. I'm doing all the reading here. You, this is a mutual participation thing, okay? So I want to hear, I want to hear voices other than the voices I have in my head. <laughs> Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. God, bless the reading of your word. Bless that in our life, God. We want to be favored by you, and may you just take our lives and use them in any way you see fit. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and powerful name. Amen.